I don't know about you, but I've often daydreamed about taking part in or even just witnessing some of the more famous events of the Old West. Imagine walking the streets of Tombstone or Deadwood when they were still wild and woolly. Or bellying up to a crowded bar in Dodge City as all those thirsty cowpokes rushed in ready to raise hell. Or even just being a fly on the wall in Pete Maxwell's room on the night of July 14th, 1881. If time travel was real, where would you go and what would you want to see or do? Me personally, I think going on a buffalo hunt would be at the top of the list. And I don't mean of the sort conducted by the hide hunters in the 1870s. I'm talking about a real hunt, Native American style. A good horse underneath you as you dash across the prairie, thousands of bison stretched out as far as the eyes can see, painted warriors on each side of you hollering and screaming. Imagine the thrill of it. And let's be honest, imagine the feast that would happen later on that day. The sights and smells of the village buzzing with excitement and the songs and the dancing, all as the choicest cuts are prepared in celebration. Man, gives me chills just to think about it. And hopefully this episode will, if but for a moment, transport you back in time and give you a tiny glimpse of what that would have been like. But let me back up. In the year 1842, a sickly 19-year-old by the name of William T. Hamilton embarked on a journey to the Rocky Mountains accompanied by famed frontiersman Old Bill Williams. Over the course of the next several decades, Hamilton worked as a fur trapper, trader, lawman, guide, hunter, and scout. He'd ride with other notable figures such as George Armstrong Custer, Jim Bridger, and General George Crook. He'd take part in numerous engagements with the hostiles, as well as living with them, and travel the West extensively. And finally, as a very old man, write a book titled My 60 Years on the Plains, Trapping, Trading, and Indian Fighting. This isn't what we normally do here on the Wild West Extravaganza, but I thought I'd just test it out. What you're about to hear is the first couple of chapters in Mr. Hamilton's book, in which he describes falling in with the fur trappers and their encounters with the Kiowa and Cheyenne, and even taking part in a buffalo hunt. And just as a bonus, if you've ever thought about making pemmican, Hamilton gives a pretty detailed recipe as well. Couple of things to note. Number one, like I said, I'm just testing this out. If you're interested in hearing more, just let me know. Also, these are William Hamilton's words. As I'm sure you're aware, back in the 1840s, they weren't exactly all that politically correct. I will do no fact checking, nor corrections. I'm simply presenting Mr. Hamilton's story in his own words. Also today, you're gonna hear about a certain delicacy prepared by the Native Americans that Hamilton refers to as depuyer. And I cannot pronounce that word at all, but this is what the internet says it's supposed to sound like. Depuyer. Lord knows I pronounced it a couple of different ways. You'll know the part when we get there. Uh, it's a very interesting meal to say the least. I'm not sure I completely understand it. Matter of fact, I don't understand what it is. It's a French word. According to the dictionary, it either means the skin or remains of an animal. And I don't want to give too much away, but at first I thought it was sort of like a mountain man version of pork skins, only made with buffalo. But that doesn't seem right either. Um, I was able to find another source backing up this particular meal on a website highlighting the various diets of the Blackfeet tribe, and I'll drop a link in the show notes. Also in the show notes is a link to Hamilton's book if you're interested in reading the rest of it. Like I said, maybe you'll like this, maybe you won't. If you've ever had, let me know, and let me know what it tastes like. Like I said, maybe you'll like this, maybe you won't, but without further ado... Here are the first two chapters of William T. Hamilton's My 60 Years on the Plains. My name is Josh, and you are listening to the Wild West Extravaganza.
on the River Till in Shavoy Hill, Scotland, in the year 1825, 25 men formed a company for the purpose of immigrating. These men built themselves a bark and, when ready to sell, held a council to determine whether their destination would be India or America. A vote was taken, which resulted in a tie, thus forcing the captain to cast his ballot. He voted for America and by doing so destined me to fight Indians instead of hunting Bengal tigers in India. My father was one of the company and his brother was the captain. I was just two years old and ten months of age when we landed at New Orleans. My father had means and we traveled all over the states, finally settling in St. Louis 18 months later. Here I remained until I was 20 years of age, receiving five years of schooling. In the meantime, chills and fevers were undermining my constitution, and the doctor ordered a change of climate. My father made arrangements with a party of hunters and trappers who were in St. Louis at the time to allow me to accompany them on their next trip, which would last a year. The party consisted of eight men, all free trappers, with Bill Williams and Perkins as leaders. These two men had 15 years' experience on the plains amongst Indians and had a wide reputation for fearless courage and daring exploits. A good trading outfit was purchased, one-third of which my father paid for, giving me a corresponding interest in the trip. We started in the spring of 1842 with wagons and pack animals, making for Independence, Missouri, which was the headquarters for all mountaineers in those days. At Independence, we sold our wagons and rigged up a complete pack outfit as our route would take us to where it would be difficult for wagons to travel. I was still wearing my city clothes and mountain men present asked Williams what he was going to do with that city lad in the mountains. This remark cut me deeply and I hurried to the frontier store and traded all my fine clothes, shirts, and dickies, which were worn in those days, for two suits of the finest buckskin, such as the merchants always kept on hand to fleece greenhorns like myself making 500% profit in the trade. Next morning, I appeared dressed a la prairie, and the old trappers noticed the change and said, Williams, that boy of yours will make a mountaineer if he catches on at this rate. We all went to work getting our pack outfit ready, which was accomplished before night. Next morning, the 15th of March, 1842, we started, bidding adieu to the remaining mountain men who were all making preparations to start on their own different routes for trapping and trading. The trappers and traders of that day were brave and reckless men who never gave a second thought to the danger in their calling. We made good time and reached Salt Creek on March 20th. Camp had just been made when we saw in the distance a small herd of buffalo coming directly towards us. Williams gave us orders to corral all stock. No second order was needed with these mountain men, who acted in unison like a flash when occasion called for action. The stock was barely secured when the buffalo passed in close vicinity of camp followed by 30 painted Kiowa warriors, a wild and savage-looking outfit they were. I had seen many Indians in St. Louis at different times, but none so wild and savage as these were. It was at this time that I received my first lesson in how to deal with wild Indians, or more properly speaking, how to control their overt acts. Our packs were placed in a triangle, answering in case of need to a good breastwork. Each man was armed with a rifle, two pistols, tomahawk, and a large knife commonly called Toothpicker. Besides this, two of our men had bows and arrows and were experts with them. The Indians came up and examined our outfit and demanded pay for passing through their country. Williams gave them to understand that they could not go through the outfit, nor would they receive pay for passing through the country, informing them that this was Pawnee country. The Kiowas at that time were semi-hostile, robbing and killing when it could be done with impunity. 
I stood by Williams during the parlay, much interested in the conversation, which was entirely by signs. The rest of the men were what we called our fort, with stern and savage looks on their faces. Williams was well up in Indian ways and treatment, in any and every emergency, and finally gave the leader, or chief as he called himself, some tobacco. They departed looking daggers at us. Williams informed me that there was no chief in the outfit and that it was only a small thieving party led by a young brave, who had two feathers stuck in a scalp lock. We kept close watch during the night, expecting the Indians would attempt to steal some of our stock or attack camp. Old, experienced mountain men leave nothing to chance. Many outfits, within my knowledge, have come to grief through placing confidence in the Red Man, who always covets the belongings of the Pale Face. Nothing disturbed us during the night, and in the next morning we started down Salt Creek to the Platte River, where Williams expected to find Cheyennes, hoping to trade them out of some furs. We traveled up the Platte River to Cherry Creek, seeing plenty of fresh Indian sign, but no Indians. The camp was kept well supplied with buffalo and antelope steak and ribs. The ribs are especially fine and highly appreciated by everyone, whether mountaineer or dweller in civilization. We camped up on the North Platte River about two miles below where Cherry Creek empties, and about sundown, three young Indians, who had been scouting for hostiles, rode into camp. They were Cheyennes and the very ones Williams was looking for, as they were generally well supplied with all kinds of furs. The Indians told us that their village was a short distance up the creek. Williams gave them tobacco for the chief, old white antelope, and told them that we would visit the village on the following day. He then invited them to supper for the purpose of finding out what the tribe was in most need of, which is quite a trick in trading with Indians, though I believe the same rule works with white men. At all events, I never knew it to fail to bring a good trade. We packed up early the following morning, but not before a few Indians had paid us a visit. They were elated at our coming, for they were acquainted with Williams and Perkins, with whom they had often traded, and were on what is called friendly terms. Perkins was the equal of Williams in knowledge of Indian science and, like him, was brave, cool, and ready in extreme danger. We arrived at the village about 11 o'clock, preceded by our leaders who wished to select the most advantageous camp, as it was our intention to remain several days. We unpacked and put up a wall tent which we used for a store. Our stock was put in the chief's care, and we supplied the women with all the necessaries for a feast. This is always customary if you wish to stand well and must be given offhand and with generous impulse. Indians are close observers, and if they see that you give with a stingy hand, they will say, these white men love their goods and will give us poor trade. Let's trade nothing but our poorest furs. Such an unfavorable condition must be avoided at any cost, as any trader will agree who has had experience among Indians. Williams and Perkins had but a limited knowledge of sign language, but sufficient to do the trading. All these signs I learned easily, much to their astonishment. They both claimed that they would never become experts, but that if I kept on in the way that I had started, I would soon be the most perfect to any white man on the plains. It came to me without any effort and certainly surprised me. The other men had been observing my aptness and were astonished. They were indifferent sign talkers, but good in everything else that goes to make a thorough mountaineer. It has always appeared strange to me that so many intelligent men, who had been for so many years among Indians, trading and otherwise, were so deficient in knowledge of sign language. Some assert the facility in the language is due to linguistic talent, but be that as it may, and as I said before, the art was acquired by me without any effort. All the principal chiefs assembled in White Antelope's Lodge where the customary smoke was indulged in, during which we were questioned as to what our outfit consisted of. 
Then came the feast, which included buffalo tongue, the choicest of meats, coffee, hardtack, and molasses. This last article is a favorite with all Indians. In the meantime, Noble, Dockett, and myself spread on blankets the various goods which Williams had selected for his trade. Powder, half-ounce balls, flints, beads, paint, blue and scarlet cloths, blankets, calico, and knives. A certain rule must be complied with in trading with Indians, which is that you must not pay one Indian, man or woman, one iota more for a robe or fur of the same quality than you pay another. If you do, you run your trade and create antagonistic feelings throughout the village. The Indians stood in need of all the articles named, and by sundown our tent was full of furs of the finest quality. We then adjourned for supper, which was prepared by the women. After supper, I accompanied the chief's son, Swift Runner, through the village. He was about my age and took a great liking to me, taking considerable pains in teaching me signs. He introduced me to all the leading men in the village, telling them that I was his friend. I took special notice of a tall young boy with a particularly large nose, a magnificent specimen of a common warrior. He was known as Big Nose, but I firmly believe he was the famous Roman Nose, who was killed by General Forsyth on the Republican River in 1868. Swift Runner told me that a large hunting party was going to start the next morning after Buffalo, and that if I would like to go, he would furnish me with a good Buffalo horse. I asked permission of Williams, and he consented, saying, All right, boy. You can take my best horse. He is one of the best buffalo horses on the plains. I thanked him, saying the swift runner had promised me one of his. The evening passed very pleasantly for me as the young folks entertained me to the best of their ability. I was considered fairly good-looking, with a smooth face, agile, and quick in movements. I was the youngest child, and my parents had allowed me every indulgence. They owned a farm just outside of St. Louis, and I always claimed that I was a country-raised boy. Foxes, deer, and coons were in abundance, and it followed that every boy would own a pony, providing, of course, that the parents could afford it. At all events, I possessed one of the best Mustangs in Missouri, a little devil which would kick at everything and everybody who approached him except myself. My brothers would say that we were a well-matched pair, both little devils. At home, we indulged in all kinds of athletic exercises, such as dumbbells, boxing, trapeze, and single stick. And then we had constant practice with rifle and pistol, in all of which I became very proficient. I believe that all boys should be taught in the same way. It is productive of longevity and all things being physically equal. I am, at this writing, past 81, straight as an arrow, supple and quick. I have never had use for glasses. Almost every day someone asks me would I attribute my suppleness and eyesight, and I answer that common sense philosophy conforms to the teachings of hygiene. The next morning, before daylight, 50 hunters and about 20 squalls with pack animals were assembled, ready to start on the buffalo hunt. We traveled about 10 miles when the scouts discovered a herd and reported their location to the hunting chief. He was thoroughly acquainted with the topography of the country and led us on a long detour so as to get on the leeward side of the herd. As soon as we reached there, the Indians stripped a breech cloud and advanced, leading their running horses. The chief now divided the hunters into two divisions, in order to get what buffalo were wanted in the smallest possible area. It is necessary to approach as close as possible before raising the herd, or when raised, they travel fast and no laggard of a horse can overtake them. Generally, each division has a leader, who gives the order to go. We rode to within a quarter mile of the herd before the word was given. Here would have been a grand scene for an artist to put on canvas, this wild array of naked Indians, 
sending forth yell after yell and riding like demons in their eagerness to bring down the first buffalo, for this is quite the feat and commented upon by the whole village. Swift Runner and his cousin had the fastest horses in our division and brought down the first buffalo, much to the chagrin of many a young brave, who coveted that honor as they might receive smiles from their lady loves. My pony was on the heels of the leaders and Swift Runner pointed out a fat cow for me. In a few jumps, I was alongside and fired, greenhorn-like, at the cow's kidneys. As luck would have it, however, I broke her back and she dropped. Swift Runner gave a yell of delight at my success. I should have put the shot just behind the shoulder. There was yelling and shooting in every direction and many riderless ponies were mixed in with the buffalo, with the Indians after them. Reckless if they in turn were dismounted as their friends had been by the ponies stepping into prairie dog or badger holes. Many an Indian has come to grief by having an arm or leg broken in this way. Ponies are sure-footed, but in such a run as this one, where over a thousand buffalo are tearing at full speed over the prairie, a dust is created which makes it impossible for the ponies to see the holes, hence the mishaps, which are very common. All the meat required lay in an area of three-quarters of a mile. I had brought down four and received great praise from the Indians. I could have done much better, but boy-like, I wanted to see the Indians shoot their arrows, which many of them used. One arrow was sufficient to bring the buffalo to its knees. They shot behind the shoulder, sending the arrow deep enough to strike the lungs. One shot there is enough for any animal in the United States. Now came the butchering, which was completed in two hours, and each pony was packed with 300 pounds of the choicest meat. Several Indians who had been thrown limped somewhat, but none were seriously hurt. We arrived at the village about sundown and found the whole tribe lined up to greet us and to ascertain how successful we had been. A feast had been prepared and was awaiting our coming. And as for myself, I was wolfish, which is a mountain man's expression for hungry, for I had tasted no food since five o'clock in the morning. After supper, incidents of the hunt were gone over and listened to with great interest by all. Our party congratulated me warmly on my success and it was commented on also by the Indians, which pleased the boys immensely. If a white man fails to acquit himself creditably, it invariably casts a reflection on all whites. The Cheyennes were and are today a proud and brave people. Their domestic habits were commendable and could have been followed to the advantage of many white families. To violate a marriage vow meant death or mutilation. This is a rule which does not apply to all tribes. Meat is their principal food, although berries of different kinds are collected in season, as well as various roots. The kettle is on the tripod night and day. They use salt when they can get it, and are very fond of molasses, sugar, coffee, and flour. They are hospitable to those whom they respect, and the reverse to those whom they have contempt. Most tribes, Plains Indians, dry their meat by cutting it into thin flakes and spreading it on racks and poles in the sun. Although in damp or wet weather, it is put inside of lodges where it will dry but not so well as in the sun. Mountain men follow the same practice and use the meat when game is scarce. And this often occurs. Pemmican is manufactured in the following manner. The choicest cuts of meat are selected and cut into flakes and dried. Then all marrow is collected in the best of the tallow, which are dissolved together over a slow fire to prevent burning. Many tribes use berries in their pemmican. Mountaineers always do unless they have sugar. The meat is now pulverized to the consistency of mince meat, the squalls generally doing all this on a flat rock using a pestle, many specimens of which can be seen on exhibition in museums. A layer of meat is spread about two inches thick, the squalls using a wooden dipper, a buffalo horn, or a claw for this work. 
Um, this meat is spread a certain amount of the ingredients made from the marrow and tallow, the proportion depending on the taste. This same process is repeated until the required amount is secured. One pound of pemmican is equal to five pounds of meat. Buffalo tongues are split the long way and dried for future use, and thus prepared or a delicacy fit for a prince. Another important article of food, the equal of which is not to be had except from buffalo, is de pouillet. It is a fat substance that lies along the backbone, next to the hide, running from the shoulder blade to the last rib and is about as thick as one's hand or finger. It is from 7 to 11 inches broad, tapering to a feather edge on the lower side. It will weigh from 5 to 11 pounds, according to the size and condition of the animal. This substance is taken off and dipped in hot grease for a half a minute, then is hung up inside of a lodge to dry and smoke for 12 hours. It will keep indefinitely and is used as a substitute for bread, but is superior to any bread that was ever made. It is eaten with the lean and dried meat and is tender and sweet and very nourishing, for it seems to satisfy the appetite. When going on the warpath, the Indians would take some dried meat and some dupier to live on, and nothing else, not even if they were to be gone for months. I have been asked many times regarding depue by different ones and have been astonished when told of its merits as a substitute for other food, and surprised that it was so little known except by mountain men and Indians. Trappers would pay a dollar a pound for it, and I do not believe that bread would bring that price unless one were starving. As I have said, it is a substitute for bread, and when you are invited to an Indian lodge, your host will present you with depue just as you would present bread to a guest. You may be sure, should they fail to present you with Depure, that you are an unwelcome guest. Williams concluded to move the next day, so he traded for a few ponies, sufficient to pack the furs for which we had traded. When we were ready to start, the leading chiefs assembled to say goodbye, and the women presented me with half a dozen pairs of beautifully embroidered moccasins. This tribe excels all others in beadwork, as well as in garnishing and painting robes. One must bear in mind, however, that the Cheyennes of 1842 must not be classed with the Cheyennes of today. When I parted from my young Indian friend Swift Runner, he presented to me the pony which I had ridden on the buffalo hunt. I named him Runner, 